All right, hello. It's your host for this week, Dermot Flood, back again for a different type of episode, as I'll be joined by a handful of writers from the latest issue of Rupture magazine to discuss what they've written about, and also as a bit of a taster for the magazine itself. I'll stick a link to where the magazine can be purchased in the episode description, and also our Patreon, as always. I'll be joined first by Rupture Magazine editor Jess Spear to get an overview of the magazine and to discuss her own article on the crisis in the care economy. After that, I'll be joined by Roisin O'Shea to discuss her article on trans healthcare and finally Des Henley to discuss his article on the metabolic rift. Alright, so I'll kick us off with Jess. Alright, hello Jess, thanks for joining me again. Hi, happy to be here before getting into your own article. You might just give us an overview of the magazine and a few highlights in your view. Yeah, sure. So the theme for issue two is healthcare. We thought considering the situation with the pandemic, you know, the crisis in the health system after decades of underinvestment, the waiting lists, all of that, it would be good to dig a little deeper into it, explore the history of how we got into this mess. You know, um, Ireland's a bit of an outlier when it comes to our two-tier health system. We don't have universal health care like so many other European countries. So we have a long article that Diana O'Dwyer covers kind of going into the history of that. We touch on mental health and trans health care, as well as how environmental destruction, which is actually necessitated by capitalism, it causes damage to us from factory farming and habitat destruction. Um, and how this creates the conditions for pandemics to develop. Mm -hmm. And then we also kind of highlight, I think, what are really important developing, the developments that are happening in the public sector trade union, Verde, in Germany. So there's an article there by um, uh, somebody that works in the healthcare union, Verde, about how healthcare workers over years have gotten more organized, have become more determined to fight for better conditions and pay. And we thought this was a really good example for our trade union activists here to consider, you know, nurses, doctors, healthcare staff are all facing pressures to speed up work, to work more for less and so on. And so we can really learn from the strategies that these workers have used to kind of fight back and win important gains as well as getting more organized to continue challenging um, for a better situation. So some of the other things that I'd highlight beyond the healthcare section are the, um, in the features, we've got two interviews. One we did with Talib Bio, which is our farmer grower organization that's focused on organizing for changes that are needed to tackle like biodiversity loss, climate change, rural decline, and so on. They're actually the only Irish member of the international farmer and peasant movement, La Via Campesina. And we also did another interview with Helena Sheehan Helena Sheehan is a professor emeritus at um, DCU, and she's a longtime socialist activist, philosopher, and historian. And we wanted to interview her on this fascinating memoir that she's written about life growing up in McCarthy era US, how she got active in the radical movements of the 60s and 70s there, and then she ended up moving to Ireland. She got involved in the Communist Party and ended up working in the Soviet Union. She, mm. she went all over the world. It's a really interesting um, memoir that she's written. So there's an interview on that. And then in the what is to be done section where we kind of talk about strategic questions for revolutionary socialists, I would highlight a long piece by Paul Murphy on how socialists should approach what we would call the national question mm-hmm. in Ireland. So what steps can we take to resolve the brutal legacy of British colonialism, including partition, but also what do we say in a border poll? How do we unite workers north and south from both communities for socialist change? Paul looks to tackle that question. And then finally, we've got some of our, um, what we call rupture regulars. Uh, So we got a column on climate change science. And this column, this issue, focuses in on how do we know that we need to limit global warming to only 1.5 degrees? And then also, how do we know that we need to get to zero emissions globally by 2050? What's the science behind that? Um, What do scientists look at to kind of pick out those numbers? How do they hone in on those numbers? And then for the lesser spotted comrades, we highlight the life and ideas of Claudia Jones, who was a black revolutionary Marxist who worked in the US as well as England in the Communist Party. And she wrote a really groundbreaking essay on the revolutionary potential of black women in the socialist movement. It's a really nice mix. And I'm just starting to make my way through some of the longer pieces and I've enjoyed it uh, so far. 
So, you wrote the opening piece in the issue, entitled, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, which focuses on the crisis in the care economy and the role of the state. You wrote in that article, COVID brought the dependence of capitalism on the care economy into sharp focus. Nurses, doctors, nursing home staff, pharmacy workers and cleaners all kept things going during lockdown. Yet, for decades, the state not only refused to invest in public services and raise the wage floor, it propagated the myth of individual responsibility and the market knows best, while handing over billions in public money to private businesses. You then argue in the article that the pandemic and the government's response reveals a basic truth about capitalism and the role of the state. What is that basic truth? Yeah, so I I think COVID has really revealed capitalism's irrational nature. And by irrational, I don't mean it has no logic. Obviously, it has a logic. I mean, from the standpoint of working people, for young people, it just makes no sense that we're told we've to bail out these bankers. We're meant to look up to these CEOs and capitalist tycoons. Ah, they do such important work. They're job creators. And like, they're so important that they should make 300 times what the other Mm -hmm. employees in the company make, right? And then COVID strikes. And it's very clear that the people at the top making all the decisions, who have all the power, deciding to evict families, to drill for more oil, and so on, they are not actually essential after all. You know, we could do without them. And what is essential is the care economy, the nurses, the doctors, the hospital staff that are literally keeping us alive. Um, the nursing home attendant that's ensuring our grannies are cared for and getting the medicine that they need, the childcare workers who mind our children when parents need to work, cleaners, pharmacy workers, all of them, they did the things that we needed to keep going and to keep safe. But I think we need to remember also that these are highly feminized jobs. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean that women are overwhelmingly doing this work. And in many cases, migrant women of color actually doing this work. And they're sacrificing time with their families to help us care for ours. And these jobs are undervalued and they're underpaid. So even though this work is essential to us and it's also essential to capitalism, the state does the bare minimum that it can get away with. And we suffer all the consequences of this. Um, I mean, right now we're suffering in deaths from COVID. Over 2000 people have died in Ireland alone. But then if you also think about the, you know, with all the women that are dying from cervical cancer because the state outsourced the tests, you know, or consider all the people waiting years to get treatment. And that's kind of the basic truth that capitalism relies on care work, but it won't invest in it. It subordinates care work and the needs of workers to the needs of the market. In order to dive a bit deeper into this, could you discuss how the state impacts the care economy and also how the state determines public health? When it comes to the state, I think it's important to start by just saying, like, traditionally, Marxists would have viewed the state pretty narrowly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think following on from Lenin's classic work, State and Revolution, Marxists would have drawn three conclusions about the state. So one, the state arose over time. We haven't always had one or needed one. And you can see from archaeological evidence that our ancestors Mm -hmm. lived for hundreds of thousands of years without one. So changes in how we lived, how we produced, how we exchanged over time necessitated it. Marx and Engels specifically point to the enclosing and exploitation of land and resources that were previously held communally as one of the main reasons for what was uh, what they would call as the development of classes. So classes arose with conflicting economic is, uh, interests, like they talk about in the Communist Manifesto about freemen and slaves patricians and plebeians, lords and serfs, and today it would be capitalists and workers. And so the wealth that was accumulated over time by the small minority who seized the land, who seized the resources, and kind of the competition in between them, Mm -hmm. and also the class conflict that developed from the fact that a small elite were hoarding all the resources and then the huge majority who didn't have access to it, they were fighting um, over those resources. It necessitated a power to rise above the classes and ensure order, ensure order. And that's, that's the state. So the state is at bottom composed of what Lenin would have said, armed bodies of men, which keep order. Um, and they do that at home as well as violently enforcing the rule of capitalists abroad. And you can see that when it, with imperialist countries like the U.S. Secondly, and I think this is one of the most important points, is that the state is not neutral. 
it likes to present itself as protecting like the quote unquote national interests. Mm -hmm. Like they're always going on about whether something is in the national interest, you know, cause they're trying to make it out. Like we're all in the same boat. Like when the government says, oh, we're all in it together, you know, <laughs> in the fight against COVID, I would cringe every time I would hear that. Cause it's just not the truth. In reality, the state acts to protect the general interests of the capitalist class. And you can see that in the government speeding up at the end of the first lockdown, and they're announcing today that they're going to be speeding up the end of this lockdown or, you know, exiting lockdown when it's very clear that the cases are very high um, and that community transmission is going to continue to be high. The pressure is on them. And then the third um, lesson is that the state must be smashed in order for a socialist society to be established. And that's because we recognize that the modern state is an instrument that's honed and developed for the capitalist class to rule. It's, it's not for us. Mm -hmm. So it's armies, it's bureaucracy, it's parliaments must be replaced with instruments that measure up to our needs that serve our interests. And there are examples in history where workers have tried to establish worker states like the Paris Commune of 1871 would have been the first example, but then also the Soviets or um, workers councils in Russia in 1905 as well mm -hmm. as 1917 are also examples of that. But one of the things that Marxists need to reckon with is the changes to the state that have happened over the last 100 plus years. Like socialists demand all the time for the capitalist state to play a bigger role in social reproduction. We want it to take on healthcare, childcare, transport. We want those things to be publicly owned. We want them to be socialized, not privatized. So the state in many cases today, and in particular the Irish state, it's more than just armed bodies of men and parliaments. You know, mm -hmm. It's also a bureaucracy. It's a, or a civil service, it's a health and education system. It's also ideological institutions, both public and private. And it's an object and focus of class struggle. As I said before, we demand that the state takes on more of a social reproduction role. And then I think I would also add that it's also a neoliberal state. You know, it's, it's organizing things in the interests of the capitalist class, but it's doing it in a particular way. So the neoliberal state seeks to privatize public services where it can. Um, it looks to facilitate the opening of new markets for business. And it also importantly promotes the idea of personal responsibility. Like the state, as far as it's concerned, has no responsibility if you don't succeed, quote unquote, yeah. in life, like it's on you. And the neoliberal state's job is to kind of help to create a market which can provide various options in education and jobs and housing, food, transport, all those things. And it's entirely up to you if you avail of it or not. Like it's not the fault of the state or society if you didn't go to college and you didn't get the education needed for a well-paying job. It's not the fault of the state as far as they're concerned. Mm -hmm. And you can see how this ideology has played out in kind of a nasty way during the pandemic. Like the government keeps saying that it's on us as individuals to stop the spread. Like they're the ones with the resources and power to organize mass testing and tracing, to force workplaces to close, to provide support for workers to stay at home and reduce the risk of spread. Like they're gaslighting us the whole way. And that's because they're desperate to keep us thinking that their role, the role of a state is limited. Because if you think about it, like they told us before the lockdown, before the first lockdown when the pandemic first hit, that they couldn't do an eviction freeze. Yeah. Right? Like housing activists all around the country were demanding an eviction freeze. They, they said, no, we can't do it. It's unconstitutional. Well, it turns out that they can. It also turns out that they can house people quick enough if they want to. But they have to be very careful there. You know, they, they don't want to raise expectations um, too much. And, and that's when you had the Ann Rabbits, you know, talking about people being a hell of a lot better off on uh, the pandemic unemployment payment of 350 a week, like, you know, and then the blaming young people left and right, like every other week, there's some video of young people and blaming young people for the spread while the meat factories remained open, which were like a huge source of, of COVID infections. So your article applies social reproduction theory to understand how the state impacts all aspects of our lives, not just the workplace. You reference Nancy Fraser in this, who says... Capitalism's orientation to unlimited accumulation tends to destabilize the very processes of social reproduction on which it relies, thereby creating a crisis tendency. What does Fraser mean by this and how does this help us understand the current situation we're in, with a second lockdown in place and a third around the corner? So the first thing to say is that 
that workers are essential to capitalism. Like we make everything. We produce all the goods. We perform all the services. We build all the buildings, the roads, all of it. Without us, there are no profits to prop up those cushy CEO, CEO jobs. Um, and we all need care work to live, but so does capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, childcare is essential to capitalism as well as to parents because it frees parents to go to work and make profits for some company. And also childcare is part of raising a new generation of workers. It's getting young little kids, you know, used to certain norms and behaviors so that when they grow up, they can enter a workplace and then also make profits for the capitalists just like their parents did. Mm -hmm. And we need healthcare at every stage of life. We need our workplaces cleaned. All these things are obviously a huge benefit to us because they directly impact our living standards and determine whether we have a good life but they are absolutely necessary for capitalism to function because capitalism needs healthy workers. It also needs new generations of workers to replace workers that have retired. But even though capitalism depends on the care economy, it undervalues it, it underpays the workers and it tries to force families to do it for free. So for decades, the Irish state has relied on families and mostly women minding their children or grandparents would step in but then when women entered the workforce in huge, huge numbers, starting in the 80s and 90s, rather than providing free, high-quality public childcare for all families, so socializing it and making it mm -hmm. a public service, neoliberalism was the dominant ideology at the time. It was becoming quite dominant. And as I mentioned before about the way the neoliberal state acts, they moved to privately run for-profit childcare, which is now so expensive. Many women have to leave work when they have kids because they just can't afford the 1,000 to 1,200 a month payment that it, that it costs to put your, um, your kid in childcare. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, what do you do when you have a pandemic, right? You need the frontline workers there in the hospitals, but you don't have childcare sorted. All the crashes are closed. Are closed. Um, your private companies won't take the risk. They don't have the facilities. They can't afford the insurance. The workers are low paid and have children themselves that they have to look after and they can't afford the risk. And what that has meant is that at the beginning, two thirds of nurses couldn't go to work yeah. because they didn't have anybody to mind their children. Like it means our health system, which has been underfunded and underinvested in, doesn't have the capacity to withstand a pandemic. It means the most vulnerable um, to getting COVID and dying, you know, our grannies, our grandfathers that are in private nursing homes that are run for profit with not enough staff, with staff themselves who are living in crowded housing or paid low wages, as I said before. Um, like, it, it means that we suffer the consequences of that. And I would also add that the drive for unlimited growth and profits is clearly creating a crisis in terms of environmental damage industrial farming with climate change, biodiversity loss, and this pandemic. Um, they're all crises that are created by capitalism subordinating the needs of life to the needs of capital. And like capital, um, capitalist logic undermines its foundation. And of course, this creates a crisis. Workers can't work and profits are slow. And we should be really clear, like this crisis is created we have the resources, we have the ability to respond and minimize the risk and deaths, but capitalism refuses to invest. Its logic says profit comes first, life-making comes second. Um, but of course, like it's, it's not uniform across the world. Fraser's work on this is quite interesting because she talks about how the way the state organizes the care economy, um, as well as domestic labor, which are like two facets of social reproductive labor, it has changed over time. It's important, I think, also to point out that she's speaking of advanced capitalist countries. Every state has a different history. And so um, it has features that impact exactly how the state operates. And of course, the history of colonialism and empire, as well as the workers' movement in each country will have shaped the state. Um, and I think that kind of brings me to the second question that you asked about the lockdown and the potential for another one in January. Like, our state is relatively new in Ireland. It came from a fight against British imperialism and obviously has a history of colonialism, partition, but also its connection to the Catholic Church is a big reason why we don't have a national health service. And Diana's article goes into more detail on that. But our specific history is a big reason why we don't have the capacity in the health system to open up. 
um, the neoliberal ideology that the establishment parties adopted, um, it means they don't want to set up public services, as I mentioned before. They don't want to they they want to incentivize the private market to deliver. So they're kind of half-heartedly going about the testing and tracing system. Um, they aren't doing the research to really understand where people are contracting the virus. They refuse to invest in a zero COVID strategy, which relies on test, trace, isolate, and support system to really hunt the virus. But at the same time, capitalism needs us to work. So the pressure is on the government to open up. Like they're going to open up pubs and restaurants because businesses are pressuring them while cases are still in the hundreds a day. Like they're going to do that next week. They're going to open up. You know, they've admitted we're going to face another lockdown and we've got to continue to put the pressure on them to invest in a zero COVID strategy so that we can really open back up safely rather than kind of yo-yoing in and out of lockdowns, which is just horrific for families, for young people, for our mental health, as well as just a nightmare for small businesses. So very lastly, your article is entitled, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. And you write within it a glimpse of what could be done if the state worked in the interest of workers, not capitalists, was seen in some of the measures the state enacted, but then quickly rolled back. What could be done differently and how do we get there? Yeah, I think in the here and now, we have to continue demanding that the government implements a zero COVID strategy. I don't think we should just rely on a vaccine, even though it's excellent news that there's a number of them that, mm-hmm. that look like they could be viable. Still, I think we, we should not rely on that. We should be demanding a zero COVID strategy. And I think we need to do that to keep reminding people that the resources are there to stop the yo-yoing in and out of lockdown. I think we also need to put pressure on the trade unions to bring their power to this fight. Um, workers have gone on strike all over the world for things that they need to stay safe, like Amazon workers going on strike for personal protective equipment. We saw also on-post workers do that at the beginning of the pandemic when they didn't have gloves and hand sanitizer and the like. We need that more widely organized with discussions about what kind of action could be taken and through that, how could we build our capacity to continue challenging capitalism and challenging the way that it organizes society for profit and not for life. I think alongside that, we continue demanding that our public services are actually brought back into public control. So unwind privatization, fully invest in a national health service, invest in the capacity that we need right now, you know, stop renting the private hospitals, take them over and integrate them. We also need to build housing. We need to build zero carbon public housing on public land and and do that alongside public transport, community creches, schools and shops so that you're building up a, a resilient community. You're not just building houses here and there. But I think the last thing that I'd say, just to make it quite simple, is, you know, um, one of the first books on radical history that I read was by an American historian named Howard Zinn. I don't know how familiar um, Irish listeners would be of Howard Zinn, but he wrote a book called The People's History of the U.S. Um, And he said something that kind of always struck with me when I think about how things could be different. He said right now that things are topsy-turvy, that things are all wrong, that the wrong people are in jail and the wrong people are out of jail, that the wrong people are in power and the wrong people are out of power. So very simply, we would turn things upside right. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of CEOs and corporate boards making the decisions, weighing up their profits versus our lives. We wanna put working people in power. All of us who do all of the work, who have our health sacrificed for profit, our environment sacrificed for profit, and our lives and our future sacrificed for profit. And by putting working people in power, that points to an entirely different state. You know, one that works for us and serves our interests. And that would be a state that brings care work to the heart of how society and production is organized so that we can plan for a good life. All right, I think that's a perfect place to leave that. So thanks for joining me, Jess, and I'm going to hop on over to our next writer. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks for joining me, Roisin. Hi, Dermot, nice to be here. So November is Transgender Awareness Month, and to highlight the challenges facing the trans gender community you wrote an article entitled the right to transition around trans healthcare in ireland mm-hmm. you say at the beginning of the article quote 
Ireland is one of only four countries worldwide in which a trans person may legally change their gender by self-determination without assessment or intervention from the state. But that, while this development is a huge stride forward for trans rights, it can, quote, distract us from the many glaring issues that remain unaddressed. What are some of these issues that remain unaddressed? Well, I mean, there's a lot of sort of central issues. Um, the reason I highlight the fact that, yes, we have this this right to legally change your name, your name and gender on a passport or a birth certificate is that that is obviously incredibly important that people have fought for it. But a lot of trans people in Ireland feel that it's essentially changing an M to an F or an F to an M on a piece of paper um, and that it really sort of yeah distracts and takes away from where the real fight is and that Ireland is often sort of held up as this example um, when like yes it has totally glaring gaps in its treatment so the main fight that organisations like Tenny and This Is Me who are like organisations for trans rights and trans healthcare in Ireland their main fight is um about the model of care in Ireland. So the international standard of best practice, which is defined um, by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, is a model of care called informed consent, which is, you know, in very simplistic terms, you go to the doctor, you tell them you want to transition, they tell you, well, you have this treatment option or this or this or this, this is why it's good, this is why it's bad, and you, being informed, give your consent, hence informed consent. Um, which on paper Ireland follows. We've signed up to follow this because it's part of the WHO guidelines and of course we are signatories to that. Um, but the trouble is that there is only one clinic in Ireland that treats trans people, which is the National Gender Service in Lachlanstown in Dublin. And they specifically as a clinic follow an outdated psychiatric model in which you have to be diagnosed through rigorous and incredibly invasive questions with gender dysphoria, which is outdated to the point of absurdity. The WHO don't actually classify transgender identities as disorders anymore. They are not behavioural or mental disorders by any standard. But this is, in practice, what we follow because it's up to the individual clinic to decide so we can say you know the HSE and the Department of Health can say oh we follow informed consent but if the only clinic who actually treats people doesn't do it then it doesn't do them any good um the problem with this model is yes as I said it like the questions that people have to endure are incredibly invasive and often just irrelevant it's questions about like how they pick up sexual partners the mechanics of how they have sex what their parents relationship was like during their childhood whether they were ever abused incredibly traumatic questions and it's a really intense process you're in a room with a psychiatric professional for three hours asking relentless questions and this after you've endured the waiting list the waiting list is another central issue it had gotten better it's historically been awful it had improved in inverted commas to 15 months last year and as of February so even pre-covid crisis every health clinic getting slammed it had sprung up to three years so you go through three years of waiting you get to the other end and you are put in this room to be diagnosed with a condition that doesn't exist before you can get the treatment you need um so of course an obvious side effect of this is people just can't make it people turn to different options there's people buying hormones online and self-administering maybe with the help of their gp maybe not as in like their gp might advise them but even then a lot of gps refuse to do so but it's incredibly dangerous you can develop osteoporosis you can develop anemia you can die you can have all sorts of side effects from it but people feel like it's their only option or maybe they go abroad where it's incredibly expensive if you have surgery abroad you have no aftercare because you're coming home to Ireland and it's not part of our structure here because you've gone to Eastern Europe is quite a popular destination for it um, or if you have the money you do it privately in England or maybe in Northern Ireland and I mentioned in my article that it can take as little as six months and two appointments to do it if you've got the cash to do it privately in the UK. Um, and of course, 
for a lot of people on the waiting list, they don't feel like there's an option and they kill themselves. We don't have any figures on the amount of people we lose to suicide during that waiting list because all that happens is they don't come to their booked appointment in Dublin. There's no checking up. You would have to, I spoke to Vanessa Lacey, who is wonderful, incredible, helpful, incredibly helpful. She works for Tenny. And the way she said it to me was, you would have to call each GP individually and say, hiya, is your patient still alive? Before you could find out, which obviously they're not doing. So we have no idea. But when you look at figures that Tenny have found in people who have survived and who have transitioned, 76% of respondents to their survey had self-harmed prior to transition and 81% had considered or attempted suicide, which is incredibly disproportionate to the trans community. And this drops to yeah. 0% for self-harm post-transition and 4% for considering or attempting suicide post-transition, which just goes to show how essential this is and why having the trauma of a three-year waiting list and having the trauma of this incredibly invasive procedure, we lose so many people to it. Like, if this is the figures for survivors, it's really not difficult to imagine how many people couldn't make it. Yeah, it's it's um, it's really insane and it's it's shocking when I was reading the article just that the numbers. I I mean I already understood previously how intense the process was that we already inflict people on uh, like and in, already inflict on people. Um, but no, it's interesting when you kind of dig into it. I think the debate in Britain over the right to declare your gender has kind of shown the importance of self determination in all of this, but also the fact that they have a free healthcare system and we don't has highlighted how having a right without the ability to exercise it has real negative impacts you remark at the end of the article that no one should have to pay for the care they need but the needs of transgender people are clearly a low priority in our two-tier system and as a result trans people living in ireland are suffering what do you think needs to change first and foremost the Minister for Health needs to start answering his emails. I mentioned at the very beginning of my article um, that former Minister for Health, Simon Harris, had set mm -hmm. up a steering committee, the idea of which was it was going to review transgender health in Ireland and make assessments, make recommendations, and it was quite a good committee. Noah Halpin was appointed as um, ministerial representative. He had a direct line to speak to Simon Harris and apparently Harris was very responsive um, and it involved people from the Department of Health, people from HSE, people from Tenney, people from This Is Me and they finished their report and the HSE submitted their report on I believe the 28th of February 2020 and essentially it seems to have gone missing and nobody knows who's responsible, everyone's blaming it on other people, ministers are saying that the HSE will submit it after further action to the Department of Health, but due to COVID, this has not happened, which is not true. It has been finished and submitted. Um, Noah Halpin wrote um, an interesting statement about this report misplacement. And he has a quote from um, Donnelly saying, I am informed that due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, additional time is required to collate the information for the final report. I am advised that the report will be published as soon as possible. So he doesn't realise that the report is finished and has, be, has been submitted to his department. He has no <laughs> idea. He has the report if he would just care to actually look for it. Um, Donnelly is also not responding to any of Halpin's contact. Halpin, as I said, um, is the ministerial representative on this committee, which has now concluded um, and has said that Harris always responded to any contact and really upheld the agreed standard and that he has not heard from Donnelly once. Tenney have also not heard from Donnelly once. Tenney, when I spoke to them writing the article, which was several weeks ago now, had contacted Donnelly three times. Noah, who wrote this article on the 22nd of November had contacted Donnelly, I think, six times in various mediums and has not heard a response. Um, so that would help because <laughs> this report was recommending changes which are so 
direly needed, one of them being the change of the model of care. So in this time, the model of care has continued in this outdated, damaging, traumatic psychiatric system. Um, another issue is, as you mentioned, you compared the situation in Ireland to the UK, and that's quite interesting because the only facility for treating transgender children and adolescents, because the law is slightly different around that in Ireland, is um, a UK-based clinic working out of Crumlin Children's Hospital in Dublin under the Treatment Abroad Scheme. But because we don't know post-Brexit how this is all going to relate, all the children and teenagers and families going there have no certainty about their quite immediate future. They don't know what sort of treatment is going to be available, whether there'll be any clinic. Um, again, this was... I mean, not. I don't know if it was entirely sorted out by this report, but there was movements made to deal with this. It had recommendations, which have just gone missing, essentially. Um, another thing which has gone missing is 120, um, 120 cases of um, people being recommended to the gender clinic. There are 120 patients from 2016 whose papers have disappeared. And they were not contacted. They thought between 2016 and now that they were going up the waiting list. They understood that it was two years plus and that they would hear once there was an appointment, but it has now become apparent that they are not on any waiting list. There has been a scramble to find them appointments and they have not been checked in with in the meantime. The whole system is a shambles and organizations like This Is Me and Tenny understand this. They speak to these people every day they know this and they fought for this on this committee and they put it into this report and they followed the guidelines and the deadlines that were set for them and the other end of the bargain has not been held out. They and other professionals put this effort in and it has just disappeared. Yeah, it's insane. Like, I, I think uh, I'm just kind of flabbergasted by the the whole process that, that you go through in the article just outlines how a lot of this stuff is just can't left in absolute no man's land uh, and it's really difficult for people to understand like how you kind of plug in and support this i know i'd have similar feelings i think people like you know helping our organizations like this is me or tenny have done amazing work up to this point um just ensuring that the ball keeps rolling but it's so crucial that support stays there what what in your view is is the best way for people to plug in or to to support this issue think hassle the minister i think right. show this is me and tenny your support i think if you're someone who needs support contact them they are phenomenal um, mm. and i think just talk about it that's the thing is it's so you know i said that it's given even less priority than any other healthcare and we have a problematic healthcare system but it's also given so much less prestige in media um like for instance the um the change of legislation to allow people the right to self-identify came in just after and sort of on the back of the marriage referendum. It didn't really make news. I mean, it did in certain circles, but I mean, and that's good news for trans people. You can imagine how relegated bad news is. It's like, if you're not trans, you don't know about it. It's not talked about. And people would be appalled if they realize, mm -hmm. like the lack of emphasis is the main thing. This idea that, you know, Donnelly has a lot of statements sort of fobbing it off because COVID, because COVID, because COVID. But these problems all predate COVID. This report yeah. came in at the end of February, before COVID kicked off. There's a lot of ministers saying that, you know, that this surge in the waiting list is due to COVID, etc., etc. Except that the National Gender Clinic didn't stop appointments during covid during no stage of lockdown did they stop their in-person or online appointments so that hasn't slowed things down this is an existing and historical problem it's in other areas as well like for instance in terms of specialized treatment for trans people as i say there is only this one clinic and we basically have no surgical options nobody in ireland has ever performed bottom surgeries so like sexual organ reassignment surgeries it's insane um, top surgeries there was one woman I think somewhere in the west of Ireland who has recently gone into semi-retirement and even she was not specialized in trans surgeries her specialty was removing breasts for various patients but not 
the reconstruction part of you know if you're having top surgery you're trying to make a male chest you're not just trying to remove female breasts um so we have so little specific training that even if you can make it through the three years and even if you can sit through the three hour interview and you can put up with all the bullshit and you make it through you still have to get sent somewhere else to do surgery if that's what you want to do if you want hormones there's only two people in Ireland who can do that it's just so so de-emphasized it's just seen as so peripheral nobody focuses on it it's nobody's area of expertise and nobody cares about it except the people who are dying from it nobody in a position of power to help seems to give a damn and that's what needs to change yeah absolutely i think the the spotlight needs to stay on this struggle and i think that the um your article is a, a fine contribution to that um and i think we'll leave it there and people can continue to read uh, your article within the within rupture and all of the other features that i'll be focusing on today but for now i'll hop on to another writer so thanks a million for joining me roisin you're very welcome dermot thank you and last but by no means least i have des henley on the line thanks for joining me des good to be here so you've written an article entitled severed on the metabolic rift between humans and nature which is something marx wrote about but hasn't really been discussed widely or applied until eco-socialist thinkers recently, like John Bellamy Foster, began writing about it in the last 20 years. Can you outline what is the metabolic rift and why should eco-socialists study this theory? Yeah, um, well, it's a concept developed by Marx um, and was very much a foundational part of his philosophy of historical materialism. You know, and then put very simply that Humans are, are a product of and a, and a part of nature. Uh, there's nothing particularly special about us uh, in that we weren't created uh, and we're, we weren't put here to serve some sort of purpose. We evolved from nature as part of um, the evolutionary process and we've, we're in a constant process of human development, uh, historical process it's driven by social interactions in terms of, uh, of how humans have, have evolved and developed through the 300,000 years or so that we've been on the planet in our, moder in our modern form. So we're very much inseparable from nature and we're of nature. Um, and what, what Marx explored in his, in his works is that we have to live within the limits of what? The natural environment can provide and tolerate in terms of our use of natural resources um, mm -hmm. and it, then he, he talked about you know the, the metabolic process you know the, the metabolic process was something that was been talked about in wider natural science in in marx's day in the early and mid parts of the 19th century um, and I, I think it was Engels that defined it as the, the organic exchange of matter is the most general and characteristic phenomenon of life. Mm -hmm. So to put, put very simply, meaning that you know, when we eat something, we're converting organic matter into energy to, to sustain ourselves and to, and to grow. Um, so that's a, a metabolic process, conversion of matter from one form to another uh, to, to use as energy. Um, and Marx also talked about uh, the human la labor process as a uh, as a metabolic process as well, and how the, our our work converts our natural environment in, into the means of our existence. So our work creates the food that we need, our shelter, clothing, technologies, and, and equipment. You know, everything is a product of human la labor interacting with our natural environment. So, you know, we, we spoke about it as being part of, we're part of nature and we are totally dependent on nature. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, having established that then that the rift comes in when Marx talks about how capitalism in particular uses nature. Because um, you know, ca capitalism is a system that it only exists to serve one purpose, which is the permanent 
exponential growth of capital, you know, on, over probably the 300 years of its existence, it works out at about 3% per annum of, you know, growth in capital or in growth in GDP over that period. But that 3% per annum might sound modest, but that doubles capital or doubles GDP every 24 years. So that that's, you know, that's a big um, strain on our environment because capitalism has only two inputs that it can use to achieve that growth. You know, it's got human labor and it's got natural resources. You know, that there's no other way of, of growing capital beyond the use of those. Um, and it consumes and, and degrades human labor and, and natural resources relen relentlessly to achieve its growth. Um, so capitalism treats nature and natural resources as a free gift, as, as how Marx put it. Uh, from which it can extract value in the form of creating commodities that it then uses for sale in the process to, to accumulate further capital. And it does that without any regard for the effect on the environment and the ability to replenish and restore what's been consumed and degraded. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's probably in, in short form, you know, what, what you know, Marx defined as the metabolic process and then the metabolic rift between how human society operates under capitalism and the natural environment that we are completely embedded within and dependent upon. Yeah, perfect. And I think that separation kind of engenders the, the dismissal of nature or the dismissal of like climate destruction or climate breakdown that we get at large in, in society. Your concluding section, uh, discusses briefly how this repair or this rift could be repaired. What can we do today to fix this? Yeah, um, so this, you know, this growing metabolic rift has really been going on for hundreds of years, really since the, um, since the existence of capitalism first came into being and, and has accelerated rapidly really since the mid 20th century. Um, to the point where we are reaching the limits uh, or what scientists refer to as the planetary boundaries. You know, they've identified key, nine key planetary boundaries um, and greenhouse gases and climate, uh, climate change are just one of those. Um, it's, it, we're in a particularly dangerous situation there, obviously, that greenhouse gases are at a level well above the levels that uh, have pertained through the entire existence of modern humans. So we've been around about 300,000 years. So greenhouse gases have never been as high as they are now in the time of our existence. So we're pushing ourselves into a climate that humans have never existed in. We didn't uh, evolve within. And we're unlikely to be you know, physically, um, uh, and therefore probably culturally and technologically uh, unsuited to the, to the climate that, that we're generating rapidly um, in the coming years. But beyond uh, greenhouse gases and climate change, there are other you know, areas like land usage is, is rapidly approaching, approaching very dangerous levels, and particularly around deforestation and what we're seeing in the Amazon and, and other areas. The nitrogen and phosphorus cycles are in a serious condition. So, you know, there are serious consequences and potentially cat catastrophic impacts coming out of, of these. Um, and it's not overstated to say that you know, presents a, an existential threat to human civilization because you know we're, we are so dependent on on these uh, natural resources and our natural environment. So in terms of then how we need to respond to that, you know, it, it's it's really necessary that we restore much of our natural environment to public you know, and common ownership. You know, so to take for example, fossil fuels, you know, that are still in the ground, but in, you know, largely owned by the major corporations, the likes of Exxon and Shell, who have every intention of use, extracting those fossil fuels and using them uh, for the purposes of, uh, of making profit for themselves. So they, quite simply, they need to be taken into public ownership and they need, 
then the, you know we can as a society decide to keep them in the ground and we must keep them in the ground um, but there's you know similar actions are needed in relation to to land you know there's a lot of land that that is currently in private ownership has been you know developed again for profit purposes needs to be brought back into public ownership so we can make decisions about you know pres preserving forested areas rewilding you know, development of land where we need it in terms of housing, but doing that in a, in a very sustainable way. Um, and then we just need to organize our, reorganize our production based on meeting human needs. And again, you know, getting away from the global model of production to meet corporate profits, to, to produce commodities that can be sold for profit often with little real value in terms of meeting human needs um, and to do that in a way that is um, consistent with achieving carbon neutral production processes as quickly as possible and we really need to be getting to that by 2030 or as very close to 2030 as we can one of the concerns we've got at the moment is that so many of these the green deals that have been talked about in Europe or the Biden presidency or, you know, with the Green Party and the Irish government is focused on carbon neutral by 2050. And mm. that's just very likely to be much too late. There is so much um, damage already been done, so much climate change already in the system that's going to continue to escalate. The, the likelihood of staying below 1.5 degrees global warming um, is, is reducing rapidly. Uh, and we're increasingly facing catastrophic climate change. So we need to repair the rift through those um, actions of public ownership of important natural assets um, and reorganizing production to get to net neutral and preserving the, the environment for, for future generations. Yeah, perfect. And I think that um, that rift is a big reason why there's a narrowing of the debate to 2050. There's no consideration of the damage being done right now. Um, because I think in the last episode on the eco-socialist pamphlet, we would have discussed most of this damage will happen majorly to the global south, but the displacement and disruption that that'll cause is going to, going to have major impacts over the coming years if something's not done by 2030. Um, but I think this is touched on very well in your own article and there's following articles in the magazine on factory farming, habitat destruction and just living with this rift, which uh, I'd encourage people to have a look at. But for that, I think we can uh, wrap this one up. Thanks a million for joining me, Des. That was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. So that's a little little taster of what's in store with the latest issue of Rupture magazine. But that's not even close to all that's packed in, the 110 pages. So as I said, I'll stick a link for the magazine where it can be purchased in the episode description. As always, our Patreon can also be found in the episode description. And thanks a million, everyone, for joining me and listening this week. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Goodbye.